chapter 5, verse 21. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to preach to you on the topic, stay in the light. Stay in the light. Let's read verse 21 of 1 John chapter 5. It says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's it. Let's pray and ask God's help as we unpack this one short verse. Father, we do ask, Lord, that as we uh, come into your word here, we recognize that there's just a couple words. It's a short verse, but we know that your word is powerful, sharp enough to uh, cut us up spiritually and to put us back together. We ask that you would do just that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. J.I. Packer Once wrote, what other gods could we have besides the Lord? Plenty, was his answer. For Israel, there were Canaanite Baals, those jolly nature gods whose worship was rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual prostitution. For us, there are still the great gods, sex, shekels, and stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one god, self. And the other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position, whose worship is described as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. 1 John 2, verse 16. Football, the firm, and the family are also gods for some. Indeed, the list of other gods is endless, for anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. And I think he's correct. I wonder what is taking the place of Jesus in your life this morning. There are many gods in this world which compete with Jesus Christ. Gods of this world which compete for the glory of Christ. Gods of this world which compete for the preeminence of Jesus Christ in your life. And the gods of this world lead us into darkness. And that's the only place that they lead us. Now the gods of this world, as you might know, look very appealing. They look very good. This is why we find ourselves often at the altar of all of these different kinds of gods. But if you look at the text here, in verse 21, he says to keep yourself from false gods. Now, we know that God doesn't require us to keep ourselves from anything which is ultimately good. Think about that with me for just a second. Turkey. Have at it. It's all good. That's what he said. Like, eat meat. It's good. You don't want to eat meat? Vegetarians? God, may God's grace be with you. You're free to do so. But the point is, is whether you want to eat vegetables or meat, you're free to do that because it's good. It's all good. You see what I'm saying? Sexual intimacy. Follow the scriptures and you will find the best sexual intimacy that you can possibly have. And that is according to the guidelines of scripture. It's good. 
a little wine for the stomach, good, in moderation. But God doesn't keep us. You see what I'm saying? He doesn't say stay away from something that's ultimately good. Now, I wonder what area of, of uh, God is calling you to obedience in your life, and you sort of are buying this lie that if you obey God in this area of your life, that it's somehow ultimately not good for you. God doesn't keep you from anything that is ultimately good. And what he says here is keep yourselves from idols. What does this tell us about idols? It tells us that they are ultimately what? Come on, help me out. They're ultimately not good. They ultimately lead you only to a place that is dark. Now we're ending this series in 1 John this morning. We, this is our 20th sermon in this short book, and we end on this very short verse. I think this is the shortest verse I've ever preached. And I wanted to end on this verse. I wanted to just kind of let this be its own sermon because I found this verse, when I first read through 1 John, I found it strange. Like, it doesn't seem that idolatry has been a theme in 1 John. He hasn't talked about idolatry. He hasn't talked about idols. And then all of a sudden, at the end of 1 John, he throws in this final line, which is, you would think the last line of the letter is sort of, that's, that's the it right there. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, remind yourselves that people left the church. That's what, that's what precipitated John's writing. There were a, a bunch, of, we don't know how many, but we know that it was a significant amount, amount of people. Uh, some scholars, I was recently uh, listening to one scholar talk about this, and he speculates that it was mostly young men for a number of reasons. Could have been some of their leaders, some of their up-and-coming pastors, possibly. And, and these people have left the church. And that's really what John has been getting at, is, is this issue that has come up in the church because of this cessation, if you would. And so in chapter 1, uh, we, we, we saw that John gets onto the hypocrisy of these false teachers who left the church. These people evidently claim that there is no sin in their life. They don't have sin. It's not a thing. In chapter 2, he talks about how these false teachers promoted this licentious life, and he basically says avoid that sort of stuff. This idea of, of loving the world and, and uh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. In chapter 3, he talked about lawlessness, and he associated this sort of reckless abandon away from Jesus Christ as not some sort of cute little theological idea or movement or whatever, but he actually calls it lawlessness. He talks about how Cain uh, killed Abel, and he says if Cain thought that way about Abel, what do you think the people of the world think about you? In chapter 4, he got onto this false idea of Jesus. Which, which then led to a lack of love for each other. And he essentially says here, if you don't love each other, you've got no assurance that you are in Jesus. In chapter 5, he talked about what it looks like to love God. And loving God is, has been a theme in this. And one of the themes of loving God is, is that we know we love God when we obey God. And this is what he expands on in Chapter 5, that we are to be people of obedience to God. And if we are living in disobedience to God, it's actually a sign that we don't 
really love God. Now, I think what he's doing with this last line is he's saying all of that is idolatry. Like, I think what he's saying is, is at the end of the day, what I've been encouraging you to avoid, what I've been encouraging you to steer clear from as you resist these false teachers in your midst, what I'm really talking about is idolatry. I'm talking about idolaters. And I want you to stay far from them, and I want you to stay far from the practice of idolatry. One of the old catechism, a catechism is sort of like an old Q&A tool that they would use to teach the church and to teach children theology and doctrine, things of Jesus. There was an old catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's very famous first line, first question is this. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer that's given is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your only comfort in life and death? I want you to ask yourself that question. Like, be honest with yourself. Because the way that you answer that question really determines whether, you not, whether or not you're giving into some idols in your life. What is your only comfort in life and in death? I hope that we can all say amen to the answer, my only comfort in life and death is Jesus Christ. Now, if Jesus Christ is our only comfort, if he is our only hope for life in this world and in the next, family, we can't let anything take the place of Jesus. So how do we do that? Well, first, we've got to know our idols. We've got to know what our idols are. In ninth grade, I had a friend named Eddie. Eddie was one of these kids who hadn't played football since seventh grade, but he thought he was going to go to the NFL. You ever have a friend like that? Maybe that was you. All right? So I remember I was talking to Eddie, and pretty much all he ever talked about was, like, football and girls. And uh, I was talking to him, and he got all, he got all religious on me. And, and it was uncommon for Eddie to get spiritual. And Eddie said, you know, I've told God something. And I was like, what would you tell God? He said, I told God that if he'll give me one year in the NFL, that I will serve him for the rest of my life. I will go anywhere. I will go to the mission field. I'll go to the hardest place in the world and give my entire life for it. And I thought, you are doing uh, such a favor for God, aren't you? <laughs> so all he has to do is give you a year in the NFL, and you'll give him your life. Mm. There's a St. Uh, uh, Augustine quote in the bulletin. Does somebody have a bulletin? I actually didn't write this down, but I want it read. Who's got a bulletin? Can I see that? You want to read that for me? You don't want to read it? Come on. <laughs> Where? Right here. <laughs> I thought you already read the bulletin. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Mm. <laughs> that was supposed to be your response. That's deep. That's deep. See, idolatry is very subtle, isn't it? Anything that is to be used, we worship. 
and something that is to be worshipped, which would be who? God, Christ, Christ alone. We just simply use. That is Augustine of Hippo's definition of idolatry, and I think that that's what we fall into when we say things like, if you'll give me a year in the NFL, I'll give you my life. It's very subtle. Now, as we look at the text, he, he just simply uses the word idols here. And for the ancient world, this would have had both a literal as well as symbolic meaning for the early Christians. Literally, it would have meant stay away from idols. I really think he would have meant that. Meaning the Roman world was filled with idols. There were towns all throughout the Roman Empire that were known for, for their idols. And, and so these early Christians would have just been surrounded by idol worship everywhere they went. Uh, it would have been impossible for them to uh, live their life and not bump into idols. Now, I don't think he's getting all weird and saying, like, literally stay away from the, uh, uh, the, the statue itself as if, as if the statue has some kind of uh, power in, in and of itself, but he's talking about staying away from the worship of these idols. In addition, the early, or these false teachers were most likely what's called Gnostics. Now, Gnostics also had their own idols. They worshipped images of Simon and Helena. Now, whether it was sort of the false teachers introducing some idol worship or whether it was the Roman gods that they worshipped, the reality is, is that the underlying core of idol worship is the idea of superstition. And you can easily kind of remove somebody from the idol, but it's hard to take the superstition out of that person. Meaning, like, if, if you want to get pregnant in the ancient world, and you've, all, all growing up, like, you've been told, if you want to get pregnant, you need to go to the fertility gods and, and pay an offering to the fertility gods. You see how hard it would be now to remove yourself from that superstition. So you claim Christianity, and you, you become a Christian, you're baptized, you join the church, and you can't get pregnant. And there's this little nagging voice in the back of your head, head I might need to go down to the temple of Aphrodite. It's the superstition. Now, if we think of superstition, now we can kind of trace that all the way to the 21st century and say, we have our superstitions today, don't we? Is it really Christ and Christ alone in our life, or do we have some superstitious practices that we use? For instance, eating one Cheeto every time your team gets the ball because it seems like they eat a Cheeto, or when you eat a Cheeto, they score. <laughs> Makes sense, absolutely. Or wearing a, 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 a cross around your neck because you believe that that cross in some way keeps you safe. Nothing wrong with wearing a cross around your neck. But what's the purpose in wearing the, the jacket I wear or the hat that I wear? Do I think that there's some kind of superstitious power in this? Or looking at, Im at images of, uh, of Jesus or uh, paintings or icons or statues of Jesus and believing that there is some kind of like aura, some kind of spiritual presence in that statue. I remember walking around uh, Johns Hopkins University with Montrell when he was locked up over there. And uh, uh, we, we found this huge statue of Jesus. And we were like, wow, that is, a, that is a big statue. That was kind of our response to it. But there were other people coming in, like, weeping and touching the foot. And I'm like, whoa, you know that that's not Jesus, right? 
Like, that's just a statue. That's all that is. But, we, but idolatry is very subtle. And, and a lot of times, you don't really even realize you're an idolater until the rubber meets the road, and all of a sudden, you've got some crisis in your life. What do you turn to? Jesus Christ alone or your superstitions? In addition to being literal, there's also a symbolic aspect to idolatry. Uh, the New Testament typically uses idols in a symbolic fashion. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warns the believers in Corinth, he says, don't be like the idolaters of Israel. And some of them were as, as they ate, as they rose to eat and drink. In verse 8, he expands on that, and he, he calls their idolatry sexual immorality. In verse 9, he explains that their idolatry was putting Christ to the test. In verse 10, he explains that their idolatry was grumbling against God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, coveting is called idolatry. Wanting something that is not yours to have. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, we can add impurity, sinful passions, and evil desires to the list. You see, there is a symbolic meaning to idolatry, which encompasses everything which would take the place of Jesus Christ in your heart. Now, John's biggest issue that he was having with these teachers in 1 John is their view of Jesus. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that they had a view of Jesus that was off. They saw Jesus as as God, he, they, they would recognize that he had this divine nature, but they didn't, say that he, they didn't quite give him his full humanity. And then the, the uh, meaning of Jesus for them was, was different than the meaning of Jesus that the apostles taught. And see, a lot of times we're so subtle and cool and flirt with idolatry so much, we'll hear people talk about Jesus in just like a little different way. And we're like, you know, there's some truth there. He's probably a Christian. John isn't cool with changing any truth about Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, hey, these false teachers are a little off. He doesn't say, you know, they kind of got Jesus wrong. He says, no, it's idolatry. You get half of Jesus wrong, you get the whole of Jesus wrong. It's subtle. Idolatry sneaks in, and we say, we say, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't really like this view of Jesus, or I don't like what Jesus says here in this verse, or I don't like what this author in the Bible says about Jesus. I don't like that part of Jesus, and so I'm going to reject that part of Jesus. Friends, we are setting ourselves up for idolatry. You know, I really like Jesus, but I also love my sin, brother. I've had people tell me that. I love fill in the blank. We're flirting with idolatry. I love Jesus. But it's Montreal I got a problem with. I love Jesus, but it's his people that I got a problem with. It's Joel that I got a problem with. We can't claim to love the Jesus of the Bible if we hate his bride people of God, the church. Or maybe you're like Eddie, my friend Eddie. 
not this Eddie. You say, you know, I would love Je- I would give Jesus my whole life if he would just do this for me. Like, God, if you would just give me a spouse, then I would serve you. God, if you would give me a better spouse, <laughs> then I would serve you. God, if you would just give me some peace and quiet in my life, just a break, then I would serve you. God, if you would give me enough money to pay my bills, I would serve you. God, if you keep my friend alive, I'll serve you. What are we placing up as the if in our worship with God? What are we looking at? What what idol is slowly kind of slipping into your life? Can you name two or three idols? that you are tempted to worship. Let's just take a moment, all right? I don't want you to name them out loud. I want you to examine your heart. And I'm, I'm thinking of two or three myself. Two or three idols that I'm tempted to go to. What are these things, these people, these possessions, these positions that sort of tempt you to place them as superior in your life, to find your comfort here as opposed to here in Jesus Christ. Can we be honest with each other? Uh, Can we be honest enough in our small groups and in our conversations and over lunch later on? Can we be honest with each other to say, you know, I've got this idol in my life. Like, I really love this thing. And I, I realize that it's kind of become an idol. Like, I'm finding my identity here. Oh, But you say, it's a good thing, right? True, it's a good thing. You see, a lot of idolatry is when we make a good thing the supreme thing in our life. Like turkey could become an idol if you live for turkey. (laughs) Now, I pray nobody does because turkey tends to be dry and you got to use a lot of gravy. It is what it is. But uh, when you you make a good thing An ultimate thing, friends, that is the definition of idolatry. Secondly, not only do you have to know your idols, but you also have to know your own identity. Who are you? Let's let's start with that question. Who are you? Look at the text. Look at the text. He starts this little verse by calling the church little children. Little children. He's reminding them of their identity. Do you know your identity? Do you know who you are? Uh, basketball fans, you remember Jimmy V from North Carolina State? Jim Valvano? He confessed prior to his, his death that when he was a young 23-year-old coach that his identity was all wrapped up in whether he won or lost. A reporter came and had asked the young coach, Why do you care so much about winning? And and his response to the reporter was, because the final score defines who you are. If you win, you're a winner. If you lose, you're a loser. Where do you find your identity? I think the reason John is calling them little children is because he's reminding them of who they are. There's at least, uh, it's at least implicit 
as John sees them in such a way that he would call them little children. And this isn't a word in the original language that just simply means children, which is endearing. But it's, there's, a, there's a little I in the word, which, which gives the idea of little children. In the same way that I might call my, my daughter Jaden when I'm being affectionate toward her, I might say, Jady. I was at Target with her yesterday, and she wanted to take a picture of Uncle Ben's rice to send to Uncle Ben. And I said, oh, I said, oh J.D., let's get, let's get a picture. <laughs> now, why would a grown man call a bunch of grown people little children? Politicians don't do that. Coaches don't do that. Pastors do that. Why? Well, I think first is because John is a pastor's pastor. Like Montrell and I and other elders to come in this church, we need to look up to John and say, man, I want to love this flock in the way that John does. Like I think he truly loves, I don't think he's being condescending. It kind of comes across as condescending today. But I don't think that would have been condescending in the ancient, ancient world. I think he truly sees his flock, his chil- uh, the, the people that he pastors as children, as, as loves them as his very own children. And at the same time, I think we have to recognize that there is a reason why a pastor would call grown people little children and not a coach or a politician. It's because a pastor is called to see the people of God through the eyes of God himself. And who are the people of God other than sons and daughters of the Most High God? So here John is reminding them that you are a child of God. It's been said before that uh, this, this phrase, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God, is a definition of religion. Versus, here's the gospel, I am, or, I am accepted by God, therefore I obey. You see the difference? Our obedience to God comes out of being accepted by God. Uh, in the same way, our, 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 uh, our desire to keep Christ as supreme flows out of the relationship that we have with God in Christ. If you're struggling in your idolatry, it's probably because you're, you're struggling in your identity. A lot of times, our identity becomes our idol. You've got identity idolatry. And so kids, for instance, they might see sports, how they do with the game, as their identity. I know I did when I was a kid. I've told my kids before, you, when I used to play basketball as a child or as a, as a youth, if I would win, I would feel good. I would feel like I have dignity, like I can show my face at school. And if we would lose or if I would play poorly in a game, I would feel like I'm nothing. I would be embarrassed to walk down the hall after the game. Because my identity was wrapped up in basketball, and so therefore my basketball became an idol, and, but really it was my identity that was an idol. It was what people thought of me that was my idol. And see, as adults, we just get more sophisticated. So it's not winning a, a t-ball game that we find our identity in, but it's, it's success in the workplace. How well we do at our job. Or whether or not the people around us think we're doing okay. It doesn't actually matter how we do. As long as people think we're doing okay, that's really what matters. Amen? You better not say amen to that. 
<laughs> I got you, Tony. I got you. Let me tie my shoe. I'm about to trip over myself. Or our kids can become uh, an idol as we find our identity in our children. Uh, how well are your kids doing? Whether or not they are successful enough. I heard one person say that the, uh, in, in, in uh, America as a whole, sort of the mentality is, is to, to live in the best place possible, to put the kids in the best schools possible so the kids can have the best jobs possible so that they can repeat the process with their own children. In some ways, though, are we lifting up our kids as like the centerpiece of our life and finding our identity in how well they do? Alistair Begg once said, the idolatry of the nuclear family is killing the church. And I think to some degree he's right. Yet at the same time, we can tear families up. You know, the, the majority of the children that live in this neighborhood live in single-parent homes. And I praise God for single moms. And I praise God for single dads. But we've got to recognize that there are some, uh, uh, th there is some stuff at work there which would cause a family to split. You might be having trouble in your own home. What kind of idolatries do you have in your own home? Where are you finding your identity? See, we got to get away from this mentality that if I could just get a better fill-in-the-blank, then, there, there, then I, would, I would feel okay, everything would be all right. If I could, if I could just have a, 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 a better spouse, if I could just have a better job, then everything would be all right. If I could just live in a better neighborhood, then everything would be fine. If I could just have a bigger house, then everything would be fine. If I could just get that new coat that just came out, <laughs> then everything would be fine. If I could just have enough money to get my cable turned back on so I could watch the NBA this year, then everything would be fine. If I could just find a better church, then everything would be fine. <laughs> well, good luck. Look, if I am a child of God, then nothing can take the place of God in my life. That is my identity. If all glory and all power belong to Jesus Christ, I can't give any glory and any power to any other God. If Jesus Christ is the true representation of God, then I can't reject Him. But He must be supreme. We must know our idols. Secondly, we must know our identity. And thirdly, we must know our instruction that we've been given. Now, if John, I'm going to illustrate this to you in this way. If John, let me, let me, let me explain. Hold up. <laughs> let me back up. Imagine for a moment that you're a fish. All right? Not hard to imagine. You love the water. Now imagine that John is writing to a bunch of fish. I think what John would write is he would say, little fishies, keep yourselves from worms dangling on threads. 
and you see a worm dangling on a thread, and you're like, that actually looks really good. That's a real live worm. <laughs> like, that's what I've been looking for for the last two weeks. And there's, a, there's an earthworm right here in the middle of the lake. And it's alive. And your friend who goes to uh, fish church with you says, hey, remember what 1 John 5.21 says, little, little fishies. <laughs> and he reminds you of the message. And you look at it and you're like, but it's a, it looks like a good worm, and I don't see a hook in it. And, uh, and even if there is a hook in it, how bad can a hook hurt? I mean, this is a good-looking worm, and I'm hungry. So you see, John would say, Nemo? That's your name. Nemo? Flee. Worms dangling from the ends of threads. Run. From, keep yourself, guard yourself. Keep yourself from this thing. This worm. Because it will only lead to your death. It will only lead to a place of darkness. Now looking one last time at this verse, little children, there's our identity. He says, keep yourselves. Now this word keep is a word that could also mean guard. We see it as well in verse 18 where it says that, uh, that uh, 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 we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but the one born of God protects him. That's the same word right there protects, guards, keeps. However, it's a different variation of the word. So here in verse 20, it's a, it's a very strong, sort of uh, emphatic kind of variation of the word. In, in some ways, what he would be saying is this, is God guards you. In verse 18. And in verse 20, he's saying, and little children, with everything that you've got, guard yourself. Guard yourself. Guard yourself from what? Well, he goes on and he tells us from idols. This is his main thrust. This is his main application at the end of this book is to guard yourself, to keep yourself from idols. If I am a child of God and if that is my identity, I have got to protect that. You see what I'm saying? I've got to guard myself from anything that could distract me from the pure worship of Christ and Christ alone. The flow of thought here is this, is that you are in the light. And when you're in the light, you know that you're in the light. You know that you are a Christian. And so therefore, keep yourself in the light. How do you keep yourself in in the light. Well, you keep yourself in Jesus Christ. How do you keep yourself in Christ? Well, you keep yourself in Christ through keeping Christ as supreme in your life. And how do you make sure Christ is supreme in your life? Well, you keep yourself from all idols. We keep ourselves in God as we keep ourselves in Christ. Guard yourself from this thing that is going to lead to your death. If, if, if faith in Christ alone is all that you need and all that you, all that you have, 
If faith in Christ alone is your hope for eternal life, then anything else is a counterfeit God. So keep yourself from all the counterfeits, all the filthy roaches. You know the thing about roaches? You walk into a kitchen, your house has roaches. You walk into your kitchen, you turn the lights on, the roaches scatter. They scatter. Roaches live and roaches thrive in the dark. But when the lights turn on, roaches scatter. Paul is saying, keep the lights on. Keep the lights on. Idols live and thrive in the dark. And and, and John, rather, is saying, keep the lights on. Stay in the light. Don't let anything that is filthy into your life, which is going to ultimately bring you back into the dark. And you might remember, friends, a time in your life when you have indeed turned away from an idol. And maybe that time is now. Maybe you have never turned to Christ. Like, have you ever recognized that other things have been more supreme in your life than God and Jesus Christ, and you have turned away from these other things? Do it now. Make now the moment in which you turn away from the false gods of this world and turn to Christ alone. See him on the cross. Know his gift of forgiveness that is yours as you turn from your sin and trust in him as he cleanses you from all idols and trust in him alone. You see, for those of you who are in Christ, we are a people that have already turned away from idols. This is our identity. This is what we do. This is who we are. I'm not telling you anything this morning that is foreign to you. But you have already tasted and seen that the Lord is better than all the other idols that you once had in your life. You've known already that Christ is superior than everything else the world has to offer. Turn again to him. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 reminds us, he says, you've turned from idols to serve the living God. Family, let's turn again from our idols to serve the one living God. What idol in your life do you need to turn from this morning? Turn. Stop serving these things. Stop giving your life to that sin, to that ideology, to that person, to the pursuit of that position. And serve God alone. Let me close with 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God, and and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the fact that Christ is better than anything the world has to offer. We pray, God, that we would continue daily to turn from the idols, to turn from the many things that seek to seek to distract us from Christ and Christ alone, and that we would live for Jesus, that we would serve only you. God, help us. Give us the grace that we need and continue to keep us in your power so that we might keep ourselves in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,
Amen.